When you get to that second half of life, whether it is 50 or 60 years old, you should be feeling vital and continue to be feeling healthy and radiant for the rest of your decades. But how do you do it? Welcome to The Vital Vader Show. I'm your host, Dylan Smith. I'm an Ayurvedic practitioner and holistic health educator and someone who is very excited to share with you today's episode. It is with Dr. John Dooliard, who is being one of the most inspirational individuals for myself, particularly in my journey with Ayurvedic medicine, because he's an Ayurvedic doctor. He's based in Colorado in the US and he you know, he really is an exemplar of what it means to be healthy in the second half of life. Dr. John is a globally recognized leader in the field of natural health, Ayurveda, sports medicine, and he practices what he preaches. He's been integrating ancient wisdom with modern science, which he shares very generously through lifespa.com, which is the leading Ayurvedic and wellness resource on the internet. Dr. John has a ton of knowledge, and when people ask me how to study Ayurveda, one of my directions that I point them in is lifespar.com. So according to Ayurveda, the lifespan should be about 120 years old in this era today. And when people think, well, I don't want to live too old, that doesn't mean that when you live at, when you're 80 or 90, you're having memory loss and cognitive malfunction and sensory deprivation or sensory malfunction, you lose your hearing or your sight. Ayurveda does not say that is the case. That is a disease that is separate to aging. In fact, you listening right now, whether you're 30 years old or 25 or 40 years old, you should be having the same cognitive function than you do right now than when you're 80, 90. That is Ayurvedic medicine. That is what Ayurveda says. That is natural, but unfortunately, it's not normal these days. So this is what we're going to talk about, how to enhance that second stage of life, that second half of life. And even if you're far off from that, it starts now. If you're going to be living like Dr. John at 65 years old and radiant and healthy, and or you're going to be 80 years old and being able to share your wisdom, it starts now. If you're a 30-year-old, a 25-year-old, whatever, a 40-year-old listening to this, that starts now, that longevity. This is the science of Ayurveda. It's the science of longevity, but not just long and I'm holding on to a knowledge. It's relevant longevity. You're relevant to share the wisdom and to radiate life for everyone that is blessed to come into contact with you. So we're very excited to share this with Dr. John, Dr. John with you. And Dr. John and I, I've always thought we are quite similar. You know, if any of you know Dr. John, let me know your thoughts as well. But we're both Pitta. We both love sharing a lot of knowledge. We love integrating the ancient wisdom and modern science. We both had the same teacher of which we talk about. So, yes, this is very interesting. And if you would like to learn from Dr. John, as I said, check out lifespa.com. If you would like to learn from Dr. John's teacher and my teacher, they are offering pulse diagnosis which you know not many people own the pulse diagnosis and dr john was one of them and the reasons why is because he had that patience and diligence and diligence of practicing and teaching the pulse properly bit by bit over a long time so we're now offering that with my teacher who taught dr john the pulse and taught me and continues to teach me absolutely i've got a lot more to learn and we've started a wonderful cohort and there's recordings on the Vital Vader website under courses. You can check those out. It's a very 
rare opportunity to be able to take these lessons in pulse diagnosis. But starting with self-pulse, feeling your own pulse, because your pulse is a self-referral healing mechanism. So check that out. And if you appreciate this, please share it. Share it on Instagram. Tag Vital Veda, tag Life Spa, which is Dr. John's clinic and education platform, and share it with someone and, and leave a review. I would love to hear your thoughts. Leave comments in the post associated with this and enjoy. All right. Dr. John Dulia, thank you so much for joining. It's an absolute honor to have you here. It's kind of like, it was it's kind of like a slightly dream come true with my podcast because when I started studying Ayurveda, you were one of those, you, it was the circumstance of having essentially a teacher that didn't know you existed because your website was so full of resources and particularly when I was reading, you know, you were sending three newsletters out a week and you still do, I believe. And I was reading every one and I was just deep in your articles. And when people ask me how to study Ayurveda, I get asked a lot. And it's a very tricky question because there's just so much, I guess, misinterpretation of the knowledge these days, a lot of confusion. So my general recommendations are, especially in Australia, it's hard with due to the colleges, is Start reading the Shastras, the classical texts. Check out my website. There's a lot of resources. And check out lifespa.com. There's a lot there. <laughs> so that sounds really strong things. And um, so thank you so much for joining, Dr. John. It's great to be here, Dylan. Thanks for having me, really. Thank you. So I'd like to begin with a story. And that is when I was studying, basically, I'm going to try and make it brief. I've said it a few times, but I was in India doing Panchakarma, an Ayurvedic detox and rejuvenation program at the Raju Family Clinic. And I was studying at university and I kind of didn't want to go back. And I said, what should I do? Because I learned about Dharma, this, this concept of what is the most evolutionary thing you can be doing now. And I said, okay, I'm definitely not going back to university, but what should I do? And I asked the doctor there, he goes, come study Ayurveda with us. Don't study anywhere else, just come study here. So... I actually went back to Australia and did study at a college because I wanted to be certified and everything. And then I went back about one and a half years or one year after and started studying with them. And I was showing them my notes, particularly on the pulse, which we were learning in the college. And my teacher, Dr. Raju, wasn't very happy. He's just, you know, he's just like, particularly with this pulse, a lot of the knowledge has been lost. There's a lot of confusion. And he said to me, better not study anywhere else. Only with Dr. John Dulliard. And I was so happy to hear that because I never spoke to him about you at all. But as I said, you were highly, inf- I was reading you every week a lot. And I was like, phew, because I've been learning a lot from him. So that was really <laughs> nice for me to hear. Well, that's um, really a pleasant, pleasant thing to hear, really, truly. Because uh, Dr. Raju and I were very, still are, we haven't seen him in a long time, but um really close you know like he was like a brother to me mm. and a teacher and a mentor so i think the age gap is quite close between you two right yeah i, I think so right you know yeah. i never asked him how old he was i know he was so desperate to get gray hair uh, <laughs> when i was with him and i was like why do you want to have gray hair and he goes because he had a beautiful full head of hair and i was losing my hair and he just wanted to be more, he said, in India, we're more respected if you have more gray hair. <laughs> go, Why not America? Nobody wants to get gray hair. 
you know, I just want to keep my hair. But, um, but I think we are close in age. I never, I never mm. asked that question to him. We crazy that I didn't, but yeah, didn't matter. Yeah, this is this is great because we're going to speak about aging and particularly the second half year of life. Fantastic topic. But before that, the first thing we ask all, I guess, is what did you do this morning? What was your dinacharya? And you can go into as much detail as you'd like. Well, today I'm fasting, so it's an interesting, interesting day. So it's a little bit off than normal. Um, so if you want to know particularly about today, I woke up and did my normal routine, which is, you know, I have this little workout that I do on this kind of uh, pulley cross-country machine that I do all kinds of things, lightweight, but just move my body and get it moving. And then I go into some yoga postures and I do that. And I had to be here at eight o'clock this morning to see patients. So it wasn't my day for my long dinacharya. And then I do about 20 minutes of breathing technique and then a little bit of meditation, depending on how much time I had. It wasn't very long this morning. And then uh, I was off here, you know. So it's a, today's a quick dinacharya day because I had patients to see. And I didn't have any bre- I didn't eat breakfast because I'm fasting today. Beautiful. And what's your fasting routine look like? Well, you know, right now I'm just fasting because uh, there's been a lot of things in our family, a lot of holidays, a lot of people gathering, people in our home, good visiting. We have six kids and finally they all left, you know, and I wanted to have, a, you know, a day where I just stopped eating and kind of reset. So that's my day. My wife and I are both doing really both. Like, Let's just not eat, you know, today. And so we're not going to do that. We're just drinking a lot of water. So you'll see me sipping a lot of hot water today for that reason. Beautiful. And you'll... Eat the next day, or you eat after sunset. Yeah, I'll eat the I'll eat tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, sometimes yeah, I'll eat tomorrow. Usually, I don't do any really major fasts in the fall. Usually, I'll do my longer fasts if I'm going to do them in the springtime. But uh, we're also starting our Colorado cleanse, which is starting today. So I'm going to fast in the and then jump into our Colorado cleanse. So I'll eat, but it'll be a special diet tomorrow. Mm, beautiful, and you know we've talked about this on the show that fasting really. It's such a dynamic topic and so many ways to approach it, but it really is one of the most powerful metabolic interventions. And in Ayurveda particularly, it's Langanam Parama Oshadam. Like it's, it's considered the best medicine. So Yeah, right. And, and you have to be careful like when you do it and who does it and what season you do it in. And, and I think that's the beautiful part about Ayurveda is it understands you know, the, how to tie it to the rhythms of nature, you know. Beautiful. So one of the big things that you do with your education platform, which is very extensive, lifespa.com, is prove modern science with ancient wisdom. And I think that's why I've connected you a lot because I share that pitta, intellectual, scientific, you know, enjoy that aspect. But with me, I'll share, like, I also have that slight, I don't know, conflict. I love studying modern science. But sometimes I'm, I feel it's a little uh, limited and I, I guess if I could de- rather dedicate my time towards studying Ayurveda more, it's such a more holistic but also it, it feels more wholesome. It feels like I'm gaining more and it's great to be proving modern science, with, uh, ancient wisdom with modern science as you do and it's, it's no, really like nice it to know that. I like it the way you said it, proving modern science with ancient wisdom. <laughs> That's what you're trying my, to get to. My, you know, I like that. I like that better, actually. 
Yeah, I just, I'm just curious on your journey of that because it's like, you know, how much time do you dedicate to that? And when does it get to the point where, you know, we just need to swaha, like surrender that analytical mind of needing to prove something and can kind of just say, let's just go to this, this ancient wisdom. How's that battle or that balancing with, within you? Yeah, that's a great question, you know, because there are parts of Ayurveda that just haven't been proven by modern science yet. So there's really nothing to talk about from that perspective. But I've kind of, you know, I set out to make a dent in this culture. And I don't know if I have, but that's what that was my goal was to make a dent. And the way I want to do that was to give the knowledge away for free, because I had a lot of situations in life where I was in situations organization where I wasn't allowed to give the knowledge away for free, and it felt very restricting. So the teaching of Ayurveda was such a beautiful science, and I didn't know that I was going to write as many articles as I did about modern science and ancient wisdom, because I didn't think there was any science on ancient wisdom really to speak of, but I am still writing away and still finding so much more to write about and talk about. And a lot of times the, the research that I cite, they didn't know they were writing about Ayurvedic techniques or Ayurvedic wisdom or Ayurvedic principles. They were just doing their thing. And they still to this day don't know that they wrote about an Ayurvedic principle. So I kind of been lucky enough to be passionate about digging into those dots and connecting them. You know, And I think that's part of the making the dent part where people really in our culture, they, you know, you don't know what they believe anymore truly, but, you know, I think having a time-tested practice that's been around for hundreds of thousands of years and having modern science to, to back it up. It makes you, I feel at least, it's, I feel it's, it's, at least, it's at least important to look at that. Whether it's gospel or not, that's to be determined. But for sure, it's better than just ancient wisdom alone because people just don't buy it in our culture because it's old and what's good is old, we have new. And the fact that science alone can prove whatever it wants with how they do the study and who funds it and coffee's good, coffee's bad, soy's good, soy's bad. You can just prove whatever you want. So, so there needs to be kind of a, a, you know, a filter to run all that through. And that's the ancient wisdom filter and, and, and vice versa. I think they both need filters to make the dent that I'm particularly trying to make. There's a lot of people out there who teach Ayurveda in a more classical sense with the, the Sanskrit slokas and all that in ways that... I think are phenomenally good. It's just not my shtick, you know. My feeling is I want to I want to try to reach the people who would never open a Sanskrit book or open Charaka or something, you know, and make that change and bring this knowledge into the West the very best I could. And my, one of my teachers um, was a ninety year old teacher in uh, Varanasi, and he told me that Ayurveda is not a Indian system of medicine; it's universal. And he, he charged me to, to teach it as such. And so that's when I, and then when I came back from, I met Deepak Chopra and I, and I when I was in India and we came back and, and co I co-directed his center for about eight years in Massachusetts, but I was thrown into teaching medical doctors where I really needed to, to kind of, kind of have something besides the ancient wisdom because they were all about science. So that sort of put me into the groove of connecting those dots. And, uh, and I've been doing that pretty much ever since. And, and I love the connections. I, I really do. I, I, I don't think we can get rid of one for the other. I think they both need to be here. Yeah, it's beautiful. And thank you for being that filter and, and making it. It's a great, great <laughs> yeah. well, I, 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 You talked about Dharma off air a little bit ago. I think it was off air, but um, maybe it wasn't. But anyway, this is, you know, when you think about what Dharma truly is, you know, it's, it's following 
those laws of nature that provide the highest evolution. And that's not passion. It's something that aligns you with the laws of nature. I just feel so blessed. I really do. I, you know, I just so blessed in my life to have found this passion that allows me to align myself with this incredible ancient wisdom and the modern science that gets to help people at the same time. And somehow, you know, forces me, because you have to practice what you preach when you do Ayurveda. You can't just not do that. And so, so it gets to keep me on that track of, of Dharma, aligning my, my actions and my thoughts and desires the best I can with the laws of nature, you know? That's beautiful. Uh, on that topic, in terms of practicing what you preach, I would like to hear your experiences of being in India with these Vedyas, because I see some of them there. They're, they're doing their Dharma, absolutely, but also they're, they're so overworked, like, our teacher, Dr. Raju, like he, he will see patients for oh, how many, 100, 150 in a day, like they can't practice their, their dhinacharya. Or, so have, what's your view on that? And also, have you had any of that in your life of, it's great, I have so many patients, I'm doing dharma, but then that's neglecting your own dhinacharya, your own health? I think there's a shloka as well that says something about the most in, unhealthy people is the politicians the businessmen and the Vedyas. They're very doctors. And I think that's because these guys are so overworked. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's a really good question. It's, I, I, you know, I've been doing this for almost 40 years now in practice. And, and uh, you know, in the very beginning, I, I did see a lot of patients every day, five days a week from, you know, 8 o'clock in the morning till 6 o'clock at night nonstop. I can't even imagine doing that now. I don't know how I did it, quite frankly. Uh, I still see patients, but you know, it's at a limit where I just totally love it and enjoy it. And it doesn't feel like work, but I also have something else to fill my day, which is writing and researching and writing. And, and that turned out to be my passion as well. So I get to do both, but for sure, I think in the early days, I did a lot of stupid things. I think I've written, I don't know, seven books. I think I'm not sure how many, but, uh, but almost the first three of them easily were written between 10 o'clock and two o'clock at night, you know, when I should have been in bed. Mm -hmm. So I was, you know, I put the kids to bed and then go on my computer or whatever at 10 o'clock and crank it out till two and go up and do it again the next day. Luckily, I had a lot of energy and I didn't burn out completely. But shortly before I think I did burn out, I realized how stupid that was. And I started to really align myself. And I think as the kids got older and I started having more time to not just kind of work and make a living, you know, for them and provide for them, I was able to... Uh, really start to own the principles of Ayurveda in my own self, as opposed to preaching them. I always practiced them because that was part of my education was learning through experience. But there was a whole nother level that when I had the time after raising my kids, I'm going to tell them maybe I'm sort of going into my wisdom years of life where I'm starting to do, uh, you know, not the dumb stuff, just cranking it out, but really beginning to live those principles and, uh, like I really stopped traveling for, for the most part because of circadian rhythm issues that I just didn't feel like it was worth it, you know. And luckily, I have an internet so I can talk to you in, in Sydney from here and I don't have to go there, which is, saves us both a lot of uh, circadian wear and tear. Absolutely. Beautiful. So I'd like to speak about, yeah, this second half of life or this um, how to feel vital and health in your later years and second half of life particularly. And Ayurveda really says that, I mean, if you look at the, the current trends and what's becoming the norm, aging is becoming quite 
uninspiring. And people associate his later years of life, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, with disease and degeneration. And everybody says, actually, it shouldn't be degenerating that much, only minimal, if, if at all. And you should be getting wiser and having that beautiful elder qualities of sharing the wisdom and respect and valued in the community and society. So, yeah, I would love to hear what your thoughts are on that. And also, do you have an intention on approximate lifespan for yourself? As long as possible, as long as I'm healthy. I don't like to put a number on it, but I think living to 100 should be easily attainable if you do it the right way. I think that, you know, when you look at the, the, the life cycles where you, you have your childhood, where you're in the kapha time, where you're very flexible and growing and elastic, and then you go into the pit of time of your life until you're, say, 60, 50, 60-ish, where you change the world. You know, you go out there and you do your thing. And I feel like I really did push hard, you know, in that department, raise kids, you know, make a living, provide all that stuff. And then you go into the wisdom years and you realize what this whole thing's really about. So, you know, I'm 65 now and I feel like this is the absolute best time of my life because I'm able to see things through a lens that I, I wasn't able to see them through when I had to put six kids through college. You know what I mean? My last one's now a freshman in college. So I'm just like, it's like, the, you know, the window and my, and my kids are gone. I my, literally, my, just uh, my, my, my last one went to college and my last one left. So I, we have like no kids in the house. It's crazy. Like we were empty nesters and, and all of a sudden you begin to realize you know, what the wisdom years, you know, what the Vata time of life is really all about. And I think that the good news is that your body is incredibly resilient. So even if you kind of pushed it too hard and burned it out and created some imbalances along the way, this is the wisdom years where it's time to be wise or dumb. You know, if you continue to do the dumb stuff into the last third of your life, you're going to pay. But if you start making some real strong changes, it's definitely not too late. And I really believe that this whole human body thing is really an instrument for perceiving subtle energy, like no other instrument that's been de designed yet. We are able to perceive the subtle. And the whole point of this journey, this life journey, is to become more aware of what's real. And what's real is the part that never goes away, partly our mind and partly our spirit, well, totally our spirit. That's the immortal part of us. When Ayurveda talks about immortality, they're really talking about becoming a, a, a realized passenger on this journey of the soul. So we're aware of what's really happening here. This body is going to die. And, you know, what I make for a living and what I do for, for, for fun and all the things, and the, even the people that I help and the dent in the world that I might have made is going to go away. And it's going to be like, it's like, like ripples in sand. It's just going to go away. And it's not going to even really matter. What's going to really matter is whether or not I have aligned myself, like we said, with Dharma and and understanding the purpose of life, which is, you know, the, the Prush Arthas, which are for the purpose of the soul, and gone through those priests where I learned how to play, but not for getting reward from that play, but learning how to play to connect at a really deep level, the play of life, to experience wealth, but not for money, but to realize that we can't be attached to any of the fruits of our actions. And Dharma, not to have your passion and your avocation be your vocation, but, but more directly, being aligned with a lifestyle that lives you in sync with the natural cycles of nature so you can actually begin to then experience moksha or experience the subtle. So I'm super excited about being in this time of my life. I'm luckily healthy and I'm luckily able to spend more time, which is the whole point of kids gone, you have more time to do your, 
your sadhana and your dinacharya and your ritucharya, which I'm a big fan of seasonal changes and how important they are, and how to really align your, your rhythms of nature with your rhythm, the, your biological clocks with nature's circadian rhythms and bring them in line, and then see if we really could be uh, perceive the subtle energies to such an extent that we can become, you know, like I say, realized passengers on this crazy soul journey. Um, so that's the, the, the new passion. I feel like, you know, when I was teaching my patients years ago who will come in when they're all pitta and they're fiery and they've made all this money and they have all this success and their families is a disaster and they've divorced two or three times and they're sitting there with, you know, a certain age, 50 years old, and they're just flat out miserable. And I said, God, if you could just take all that pitta and all that drive and focus it towards spirituality, what would become of you? You know, like what, what could we accomplish, you know? And I feel like somehow Ayurveda has, has taken me down that road where the passion for Ayurveda has only, you know, exploded uh, because it's just so vast and I could never learn it all. And the desire to experience it more fully than I have my whole life. And I've always been passionate about it, but to experience it now has, has taken on a whole nother level. I think maybe because I have the time now to do it, even though I still feel so busy, but I'm doing, I'm busy doing the things that, um, like writing and doing more research and all that. You know? That's good. It's, yeah. It's prioritizing and it, it's a good piece of advice. And we'll go through different ways that people can align to that inner part within themselves and entertain that. And also to enable to, to do that. I think you were saying that being the passenger on this journey is to have a healthy body. So we're going to talk about how to attend to this body specifically in these years, in the, as you said, the third stage of life, which is around 50, 60. And you mentioned, um, well, one more thing is I want to add, in, in Ayurveda we say in this age or this era of life, which we're in, which we call Kali Yoga, the lifespan is about 120 years old. And if we're to think that, and I love how you think, yeah, I can easily achieve 100, is easily achievable. I also think so, especially looking at you. I think for you, definitely 100. Easy, past. And just to think that and not associate those 90s and those 80s with degenerative disorders, with people think it's normal to, for your brain to degenerate. People think it's normal for you to lose your hearing at 80 and 90. So I think just knowing that is one thing. And, and as you were saying, giving that time for the sadhana, for your practice, that's, that's a huge intervention to promote this longevity. And longevity doesn't mean I'm living till a late age. It means living to a late age with health. If you're going to live to 120 or 110, think about how you're going to be right now. So, yes, let's go through some more. You know, it's, it's so true. You know, and I can tell you from my minimal little experience of being 65, which is the age of retirement here, they have this Medicare thing where they want to, all these things happen when you're old, which is now for me. And, uh, and I just keep getting hit with all this old age kind of conditioning that takes place. So to say what you touched on, it's like, well, I'm supposed to retire. I'm supposed to not do anything. I'm supposed to just walk around the, you know, and you really have to make a mental kind of change to not let the age mean anything because I don't feel any different than I did a year or two or 10 years ago really any different I'm, a, I'm definitely not just physically strong I can't run as fast as I once did but I feel the same and it's almost like the culture starts telling you what you should do to be old like you're old now so now you got to do this and you have to have a kind of a mental construct to not let that waver you from doing what you're doing because if I feel if you just keep doing what you're doing what you love to do you could do it for 
kind of the foreseeable future, I don't see anything anything stopping me or any of us from doing it. But we really have to push out all that conditioning, which says, yeah, you're old now, so just walk around and, you know, I don't know. It's just it's crazy how I think the mind can really play tricks on you. I think it's inspiring to see Ayurvedic doctors and in, in Australia, the indigenous elders in their role of dharma, which is serving others, whether you're a doctor or you're giving knowledge till the end years, and they're more busy than ever then. And I just that's a beautiful to to shift that conditioning of this is what happens at old age to look at these wisdom traditions. That is one way to. Well, all the centenarians, you know, when you talk to the centenarians, that's what they're going to tell you. Don't retire. What does that mean? Why would you ever stop doing what you love? You know, and in those cultures where people live really long, they're revered in the culture. And I think that's the other piece of the part piece of it. The puzzle is to not get old and decrepit where you're degenerative to such a level that people want to put you in a home because you're not you're used. You don't have any value any longer. And I think the more that you can stay active and vital mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and be a leader in that regard, then I think, you know, we can revive the prestige of the elder, which is so critical that they're a part of the community because there's so much science about how, how much benefit. My, my mother-in-law lived with us for the last 18 years, and she just recently passed. And she'd always say, oh, you know, I, don't, I feel like a third wheel. And all that. I would tell her, no, 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 man, the research is in. You're helping my kids get an education. Just you being here makes them smarter, makes them emotionally more stable, makes them make better choices. It's all part of that, you know. So, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing that we've lost in our culture, and we have to get it back. On that note, I just came to me to address the feminine, because now we're in a feminine time of the year post-equinox the changes, the Navratri, Nine Nights, and Mother Divine. And I was having this conversation actually with a meditation teacher in Boulder, in your area, a few years ago of particularly for women, it's hard to, they have that resistance towards stepping into those elder years because maybe the women are more with their youthfulness and their looks and everything. But she was saying how we've lost that kind of wise woman within the society because the women, they just want to do Botox or they want to just dye the hair and they're not, they have that resistance towards stepping in. So yeah, with the experience with your mother-in-law, with your wife, what, what about that? Well, I surely hope that that's not the case because I really feel like if that we should be, we should have a matriarchal society. I feel like women should be the rulers. Um, I think men should go hunt and they come back and do whatever they want to do. But they should be taken away from power because they have no control of themselves when they get close to power. Not that women are immune to that, but they're way better at it than we are. And they're way more intuitive. Their estrogen makes them so. They, they can tell danger to protect their baby way quicker and faster than men can, and there's science behind that. So I just think it's crazy to think that, that if that's really true, that's really sad because I really I always have been feeling like women are the savior. When we finally elect a woman president, we are elect a majority of women in Congress and Senate. That is when I really feel like we're going to start to see the real change that everybody says they're going to make, but they haven't made it. So what are some other techniques and interventions that you would recommend for people to implement as they transition or as the, if they're already in those, you can say, the third half of life? I did a lot of research and a lot of articles on breathing and pranayama techniques. And I, what I found was that 
the common denominator for most all the research on all the different pranayama techniques was something called neuroplasticity, which means the ability to change your brain. And at the end of the day, like I said a minute, because these mind constructs, these, these mental patterns of behavior that we created as oftentimes young children to protect and survive and endure our childhood, we continue to project them on the screen as adults as we get older. When fun one study showed 95% of the things that people think and say and do as adults, they were created in the first six years of life, impressions that we still project on the screen as adults, and we're unconsciously doing that. So the whole point of Ayurveda was to become conscious. Now, we have to become conscious by becoming, getting rid of some of these old mental patterns of behavior. So when you look closely at Ayurveda, you realize that's exactly what Ayurveda was designed to do. There's no question about what Ayurveda was designed to do. Yes, keep your body healthy, for sure. But keep your body healthy so you can have a, a physiology balanced enough, still enough, calm water enough, so you can actually dig the hole deep. You know, still water runs deep. We can see more deeply into the truth of who we are. That's what Ayurveda is really about. Ayurveda is life, Veda is truth, right? So it's all about the letting the truth of who you are out. Not just the science of life live in sync with the natural cycles. That's 101 Ayurveda. The, the, the purpose of Ayurveda is to let something more real, authentic, more delicate, more vulnerable, more powerful out. Not for the sake of power. It's just the nature of who you are. I'm sorry. You're a human being. You've got something inside of you that desperately wants to come out. But our mind says, no, no, no. I want to stay in control. And those are the old protective patterns. The ego, the dopamine reward chemistry, the constant need for approval and appreciation of others, you know, keeps us locked into these old repetitive patterns. So, the way Ayurveda works, as you know, is you feel impressions through the heart, through the sadhaka. Those impressions, whether they be painful or not, they're going to get carried to your brain through pranavata. It's going to carry this energy of a hurt, let's say, or impression into the brain. And it's going to be written into the waxy myelin sheets of your brain, into the white matter of your brain, uh, the myelin sheath of your brain, through what's called tarpaka kapha, which means to record and to hold on to or remember so we hold on to these memories, memories in the white, waxy, myelin sheath of our brain. So if you were to write your name in some sand and then shake the sand, you could use vibration to eradicate that memory. In a similar way, you could use vibration of breath and humming and sound to literally eradicate and change those old mental, emotional patterns of behavior. So when you actually look at the way the brain works, it has this glymphatic system that dreams three pounds of plaque and garbage out of our head every year while we sleep. It was only recently discovered at the University of Virginia here in the States about 15 years ago. Since they discovered it, it's called the glymphatic system, they've linked it to anxiety, congestion of those brain lymphs, to anxiety, depression, inflammation, infection, cognitive decline, and autoimmune concerns. So we have a host of health concerns, anxiety, depression, inflammation, infection, autoimmune issues, all of these are linked to blockage of these brain lymphatics. Now, Ayurveda said thousands of years ago that this, this tarpaka kapha, which runs like the mohawk haircut, like the, so through the sagittal sinus, it holds on to old impressions. So if you were to go into a cave when you were 10 and a bear chased you out and almost cost you your life, you would always remember that cave. Even if you were 90, you're going to always know exactly where that cave was and to be careful around that cave. So it's an old impression for species survival to never let it go. We hold on to a lot of impressions in the name of species survival that we need to let go. And Ayurveda was all about getting rid of those. And they developed many techniques to do that. 
yoga, breathing, meditation. We'll talk more about those. Nausea therapies, chanting, humming. All these techniques create a vibration that actually erase the memory of those old patterns because they're literally written in the waxy myelin sheets of the white matter of your brain, and they can be literally vibrated out. And then you change, for a lack of a better way to describe it, you change your vibration from a lower protective survival, species survival vibration to a higher vibration where you begin to perceive things above the fray. You're not just riding through the rocks in the river at the bottom, you're on top, floating through the river, headed to the ocean to be free. And you know it because you feel the difference, because you know what it was like when you were 20, 30, 40, and 50, and now you have a different experience in your 50, 60, and 70, because you're hardwired at this time of your life to do exactly what I just said, to perceive that subtle energy and to raise your vibration and drop these old mental, emotional patterns of behavior. One of my favorite techniques, one of the five aspects of panchakarma, nausea therapy. You know, the, the, the three pounds of plaque that dump out of your head every year that are linked to anxiety, depression, cognitive decline, inflammation, infection, autoimmunity, all based on science, and old emotional holding on patterns based on Ayurveda, they drain into the paranasal sinuses. So when you do nausea with medicated oil, that therapy was designed not to get you to have, uh, you know, to take care of your dry nose or your runny nose. They were designed to clean out your brain at a higher vibrational spiritual level. But nobody knows that. We just think about it as a detox technique. We think panchakarma is a detox technique. It's not a detox technique. It's designed to remove the toxicity and the density so you have more clarity at the subtlest level of your perception, you can see clearly the patterns of emotional behavior that you created to be safe and secure as a young child. And then how do you then take transformational action to free yourself from those old patterns? Step one, Dylan, is to you know, create the awareness of what the belief systems and patterns of behavior that are not serving you, that are locked into you know, stressing out your organs, your 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 physiology and however you're genetically predisposed to break down. But step two is to take transformational action to free yourself from those old patterns because these mental patterns drive physical patterns. So we have to break these first. So the yoga, the breathing, the meditation, all these vibrational therapies where they're cleaning out your brain with nausea was there to create the awareness. They also clean out too. But then you have to take action. You know, in the Bhagavad Gita that says yoga sta kuru kamani, which means First, you must establish being, pull back the bow, become self-aware, which all the things I just mentioned do that for you. But then you must take action to free yourself from those old patterns of behavior. Meditating is not enough. Yoga and breathing is not enough. That gives you the clarity to see how you've been engaging in objective referral behavior, behavior based on trying to manipulate the outside world to love you, appreciate you, make you feel better about yourself so you feel good, as opposed to feeling safe enough to just let the delicate petals of your flower open and let who you truly are out. That's what we're here to do. And these techniques are designed to give you awareness of going, God, I do the same dumb thing again and again and again. When I go home and see my mom for the holidays, my family, I keep acting like a four-year-old again. All these old emotional things start coming up. Those are opportunities to take transformational action. But when you learn meditation, they don't tell you that. They just say, meditate, and everything will get better. Well, I got to tell you, I have been around ashrams my whole life professionally, and they don't get better. It's not enough. The Bhagavad Gita said very clearly, you must first pull back the bow, establish being, meditate, create stillness, become silent, 
And then you must take transformational action. So the whole point of this is to get you to a level of clarity where you can see how you've been engaging in behavior that is based on them, as opposed to engaging in behavior based on your truth. So Ayurveda is designed to purify you enough so you can see clearly the truth, Ayurveda of you, let that truth out by taking action. And that is transformational karmic breaking action. That old saying that says to the extent that someone affects you or something affects you, to the extent that it is your karma, your action, your opportunity to take transformational action. So if you choose to go through life and all these things affect you, but you choose to just go buy a bigger house or as opposed to taking action through that pain. You know, the other old saying says the pain and the fear are directly across from the bliss. And the reason for the pain and the fear is to get your attention so you can go to the pain, through the pain, access who you are and let who you truly are out. These are the, the, the mottos of Ayurveda, the Vedic constructs that, that make it transformational. And we don't do that. Now we, we you know, when I was a kid, I, I'd have a girlfriend, they'd break up, I'd be miserable, and I would have to go through the pain, you know? Now, no one even have girlfriends anymore. They just hook up or they just, you know, have internet friends or whatever. And they never have to go deep into relationship anymore because it's easier not to. But the pain is there to get our attention, to go through it. So we can take marijuana, which is legalized, at least here, for getting rid of pain. So you take it and it eradicates your pain. So you don't ever have to deal with your pain anymore. We've done a bang up job in making sure nobody has access to the truth. Our world of exterior fascination has addicted us and left behind, you know, the diamond, which is, is, is today being unexplored. It's sort of sad, really because of the way the culture has been so reward chemistry and it's so good at fulfilling us with reward chemistry and technology is here to stay. And if I had to make a bet on who's going to win, you know, investigating your own inner space and transforming this human body into an instrument for spiritual energy and consciousness or technology, I'm going to have to bet on technology because it's too, you know, you, you can't, you can't even talk to the teenagers any longer. They're, they're just gone. You know, it's too much. Now, maybe the, the two shall meet. I would, that would be cool. But we're in an interesting time where I think a lot of people are, are fascinated with Ayurveda, which is great. But um, we have to, like you said, at the very beginning of this, you've got to have time to do the work. And it's not a reward you're looking for. You're not doing the work to get enlightened. Gosh, no. You're doing the work because the process of self-exploration and freeing yourself from old patterns and seeing old patterns and then taking action to free yourself, you know, there's the Mahabharata, which is the big, great battle between the mind and your truth. But I like to think of it as a game, and I call it the game of life. I play this game every day to see how stupid that was when I just did that thing. And how can I take action to free myself from that pattern? And then I make, then I make you know, assertive you know, steps to make changes in my behavior. And uh, it's a beautiful journey when you're on that road. And if you're not on that road, I don't know what the journey is like. Buy more stuff. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't want more stuff, you know. And I think it reaches a point where it just doesn't do it for you. You know, these studies that are, I just wrote an article recently called The Science of Sattva. And it's all about how, you know, when you give and love and care for others, how people who, when they, when you have money and you give it to others, you're way happier than if you spend it on yourself. Even people in, the, in they did a study with 136 countries, rich and poor countries, and in the poorest, poorest people, 
when they had money and they gave it to others, they were way happier by giving it to others than when they took it for themselves. I mean, the science of sattva is in. Sattva is the behavioral modification that we need to make to purify this human instrument. And, you know, check out that article. It's amazing. I, it's got at least about 15 or 20 studies all about the value of giving and caring for others and how, how it affects our physiology. It is real. It's not like, oh, this ooga booga be nice to people thing. It's, it's, it's a real, it's how we evolved. We are, we are better off caring and giving to others. It's beautiful. And I want to reiterate where we're doing these practices, as you said, not for this goal or for this outcome, because then we will get rid of our traumas and we'll be in this different state of consciousness. It's the, the pro, we enjoy it. It's, it's just our life. Every moment of it is enjoyable. And I'd like to go elaborate more on the practice of Nasya. So as you said, it's one of the Panchakarma therapies. So it's a therapy you can get done in the clinic, but you can also do it daily. And I think it's one of the most important things of today is to be sniffing medicated oil up your nose regularly. On every few hours, every couple hours, that is what strengthens, as Dr. John said, that tarpaka kapha and prevents that from degenerating, prevents that. Because essentially this degenerative disorders of the brain are dryness, which we call vata. And nasya is, I think, one of the most powerful things. And particularly because we are seeing this tsunami of Alzheimer's and dementia coming. And I think brain lubrication, in general lubrication, is so important right now. Yeah, I love that, yeah, how you connected those dots. You know, vata, we're in the vata, I am in the vata of my life. Elderly folks are drying out, their skin dries out, their hair dries out, everything dries out, their brain dries out, their mucous membranes dry out. And nausea, particularly protecting the brain with something that's very, very oily. You know, when I administered Panchakarma for 26 years, I had the first run, then we had our building burned down. And that was sort of when I did a Panchakarma as detox. And then the second half of my, my experience, when I rebuilt my clinic, I did it only for spiritual transformation, to drop old emotional baggage. That's the only reason why I did Panchakarma. And for that, I used nausea as the primary therapy. Everybody got a nausea at least three times during the week of Panchakarma, if not more. And I had a patient. And the nausea is deeper than, I mean, sniffing, like you said, is great every day as, as a part of your dinacharya. But, you know, traditionally it's done with after a really vigorous head massage, eucalyptus steam, really opening up all these channels and then doing really deep nausea to get it up into these sinuses and then up into the brain lymphatics where you actually feel the tingling way up in, into, the, into the brain and feel, see really emotional change. I've seen so many patients with head headaches and migraine headaches and ringing of the ears, all these things just go away. I had one patient, I'll tell you a quick story. One patient, she came to me, she had a goiter in her neck and her thyroid about the size of a grapefruit. I mean, this is massive. And uh, she wanted me to give her a punch of karma and treat her. And I said, golly, this is, I really need to work with your medical doctor and make sure that you're in safe because her, her, she had hyperthyroid, her numbers were exploding. And uh, so we worked together and she did punch of karma. And after about the, the third or fourth day, and I always give them a journal to do some emotional self-inquiry during the process. She was writing in her journal after she did a, the deep nausea therapy. And she said she was sitting there and she had this amazing epiphany where she was watching herself being sexually abused when she was 14 years old. And she said to me, John, I completely forgot about that experience. I completely blocked it out of my mind. I hadn't thought about it in years and years and years and years and years. But here I was 
having this experience of it. But what was even more striking was that I didn't, I wasn't affected by the actual abuse event. I was so struck by my life before the event, where I was this happy-go-lucky kid. I was the happiest kid. And then this event happened, and I saw in this kind of this epiphany, a vision, I saw my life after this type A, hyper-vigilant, corporate executive, stressed out, perfectionist. She literally had a color-coded closet, a perfect house, perfect car. If anybody came to our house, she had to clean it for three hours. I mean, just like everything had to be perfect, and that was her survival and her protection, right? And she said, I looked at my life before, I looked at my life after, and I looked at that event, and she said, you know, it wasn't worth 25 years of my life. She had already since burned out her adrenals. She had chronic fatigue. She had burned out her blood sugar. She had had prediabetes, and now her thyroid was exploding. And she said, I just dropped it. I was just, I saw it at a level, you know, at a Tarpakakatha level. I was holding on to that in my brain, in that white matter of my brain. And I saw it for what it was. And it wasn't worth me holding on to anymore. So she was able to just drop it. And then by the end of the punch of karma week, after the seventh day, you literally couldn't see the goiter in her neck anymore. You just couldn't see it. It disappeared in a week. True story. And uh, about a week or so later, she went to her medical doctor. Her numbers came down 200 points on her blood with her thyroid. Within maybe nine months or so, it completely normalized her hyperthyroid. About five, six, seven years later, I was in Denver, Colorado at a Christmas party. And she came running up to me out of the blue with two kids in tow, telling me that she just had to have me meet her kids because if it wasn't for this experience that I'm describing, she wouldn't have had these kids. You know, so... I'm, as you are, such a big believer in the nausea therapy. You know, I think that plus the pranayam. Because the pranayam, you know, the science on that is just overwhelming in terms of changing uh, brain chemistry. It's overwhelming in terms of changing the physiology. You know, Ayurveda, when you read the, the Hatha Yoga Pradipika and Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, they make it very clear that pranayam meant prana, meant breath, and yam mean to pause or to hold. It was all about kumbhak or breath holding. And it was the breath holding that made a pranayama pranayam. And, they, and a lot of experts still today say, if you don't hold your breath, it's not a pranayama. It's, it's a good breathing practice, but it's not a pranayama breathing practice. And pranayama was about, once again, you know, letting the truth of you out transformational. So when you hold your breath, you move into something called intermittent hypoxia. So the breath retention in Ayurveda is called in Western medicine, intermittent hypoxia. And intermittent hypoxia is when you actually hold your breath a bit. So if you were to you know, hold your breath, if you go into the doctor and they put an oximeter on your finger and they say, oh, you're 98% oxygen saturation of your blood. Remember now, that's how much oxygen is in your blood right now. It's not what's in your brain. It's not what's in your tissue. It's not within your liver and organs. It's what's in your blood. So how do you get the oxygen from your blood to your tissues? Well, that happens when you hold your breath. So when you hold your breath, the CO2 levels rise, and the CO2 levels are the trigger. Higher CO2 levels are the trigger to release the oxygen from the hemoglobin into your blood. So a lot of people walk around with tissue hypoxia, particularly as we age, because we sit around too much, and our diaphragm doesn't work completely well, and we don't, we don't respirate the way we were designed. And the ribcage has a thing called elastic recoil. It always wants to squeeze the air out. And the only way you inflate the ribcage and fill all five lobes of your lungs is with a strength, strong diaphragm to contract it and fill it up. And as soon as the diaphragm relaxes, all the air gets squeezed out. And so one study showed with elite professional athletes that only half of them 
had a diaphragm that was working properly, fully relaxing and fully contracting, which means that most of us don't have one that's contracting and relaxing fully. So what happens is we start to breathe more shallow as we age, or even when we're young, and that affects how we sleep, how we, and we affect snoring, and it affects a whole bunch of things. But also, when you start to shallow breathe, you overbreathe oxygen. So you breathe little shallow breaths, and you keep trying to jam in more oxygen than you could ever, ever use. Your blood is already at 100% saturation. You can't take any more oxygen in. In one study, it showed that, that 75% of the oxygen that people breathe in, they breathe right back out unused which is crazy. And when we do that, we keep breathing out excess CO2. So we have, most of us walk around with high oxygen in our blood and very, very low CO2. CO2 is a sedative. It calms you down. In the States, they used to have in the 50s and 40s, they had clinics that would, people would come and breathe CO2 to deal with their anxiety. In Ayurveda, we would do breath holds on the exhalation to allow CO2 levels to build up faster for anxiety and to help calm them down. So we know the chemistry of bringing those two back into balance. So when the CO2 levels rise, the oxygen is dumped from your blood into your tissues. And if you're holding your breath, not taking oxygen in, the oxygen in your blood goes down. So now you go from 98% oxygen in, say, the first round of a, of a pranayama breath hold. And then the second round of your breath hold, now you're going into the low 90s, and now you're into the 80s. Now you're in 80% saturation, which is intermittent hypoxia. And when you go into intermittent hypoxia for short bits of time, it's almost like the body goes, whoa, this is crazy and dangerous. All the emergency alarm vehicles kick in. Sort of like when you don't eat a lot of food, you go into calorie restriction, you get autophagy and Nobel Prize winning repair and recycling of your cells and rebuilding and rejuvenation. Same thing, a little bit less oxygen tells the body, you better kick in some repair. So stem cells, are surging to the site. Nitric oxide, Nobel Prize winning panacea molecule comes surging to the site. EPO, the molecule that the hormone that Lance Armstrong got busted for injecting to make him run faster, that hormone makes your blood stronger. That's, that's produced naturally. Endothelial growth factors to protect your arterial lining, transcription factors to protect your genome, neuroplasticity, once again, to change the brain's patterns of behavior, all come when you go into Kumbach. We are literally raising the vibration. So you can then have the clarity to see, oh, what a crazy idea that I'm engaged in dealing with my parents or my loved ones in the same old dumb way, beating my head against the wall, trying to do the same dumb thing and never making any progress, having a deep connected relationship. So, you know, it's amazing, really. When you look at the science, you, you know, when I did that, I was just like, this is really clear why Ayurveda was invented. It was a Vedic science. It wasn't about, you know, living to be 100. But you do need to live to be 100 or beyond because it takes time to rinse through all the crazy emotional stuff that mm -hmm. we created as young kids. So we need time to become conscious because we are unconscious for a very long period of time. Yeah, that's... So that's why you need to live a long time. <laughs> it's a lot of work to do, a lot of patterns to interrupt and remove out of your sagittal sinus and your tata papa. Yeah. And these are some amazing ways that it's just so, you know, we've, we've been brought up to hear that CO2 is bad and oxygen is good. So that's, that's huge. I mean, people hearing that, it's like, what CO2? Like you should be optimizing that. And what I have too much oxygen. Think about it. 
free divers, dives, people who dive under the ocean and hold their breath for long periods of time. You know what the record is for a free diver? I've, all I heard was this guy was going in this tunnel and as soon as they get deep, they just, they go down. I think, yeah, they lose the some pressure and they just go really fast, but I don't know. What's the record? <laughs> yeah, they do that too, but it's 25 minutes. They hold their breath for 25 minutes. Wow. All right. That's for most people that go in, are you crazy? You can hold your breath for 25 minutes. Mm. And every one of them will tell you they're, they're not, the, I'm not at a physical specimen. I'm not some super athlete. They're generally not, but there's a receptor in your brainstem that's for CO2. And what's happened to us, because we sit around and we shallow breathe all the time. We sit, see, when you sit down, your rib cage gets pushed forward into the diaphragm. So it pushes your diaphragm into an already downward pre-contracted position. So when you're sitting in the house, in the car, on the couch, eating so much of the time, the diaphragm can't really contract fully. So it can't really fully open up the rib cage. And the nature of the rib cage, which is elastic recoil, it always wants to clamp down. It's going to win the war as you age. It's going to get tighter and tighter and more cage-like. And the diaphragm is going to get weaker and weaker and weaker. So we're not going to then be able to fully respirate and fully you know, get the oxygen in that we need and get the CO2 out that we need. So what happens when the diaphragm can't work is we shallow breathe. And when we shallow breathe, we overbreathe oxygen and we blow off excess CO2. So the ratios become out of whack. And the receptor in your brainstem starts thinking that I have to breathe more. It becomes more sensitive to CO2. So even the littlest bit of CO2, I hold my breath for 10 seconds, and I have to take a breath. I hold my, my breath for 30 seconds, and I have to take a breath. So the whole trick of this, of the, of the whole pranayama world in Ayurveda, was to reset CO2 tolerance so you can actually allow yourself to hold on to more CO2. It calms you down, which is why they go into that kind of transcendent state when they do free diving, because they're literally building up CO2 and they're going into this place, almost like a dolphin or a whale. I mean, we have, must have some amphibian genetics inside of us because we all came out of the water at some point, right? We must still have that mammalian ability to hold our breath for extremely long periods of time underwater because we, people can do it. And, and the goal is not to necessarily you know, hold your breath for an extended period of time. It's definitely not to, to break records or, 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 or feel uncomfortable holding your breath at all. It should be a very gentle, comfortable transition that takes place where it just becomes easier and easier for you to do. And I've read a bunch of articles about that that people may want to go to to kind of get started. But, but it's a, such a cool thing between that and all the pranayama techniques and the nausea techniques. We're starting to put a lot of you know, eggs in the basket of, of making deep transformational change and not going through this life, carrying old emotional patterns. I don't talk to my relative here. I don't talk to my relative there. And never really becoming free of those, those emotions. What a waste of life, you know, when you think about it. That's what I love about Ayurveda is the approach that they deal with those emotional patterns is by going into the body rather than, you know, seeing a psychologist and intellectualizing it. And even just a treatment yeah. like nasya or treatment like shiradara or takradara, like these therapies to the body are removing it stored in the body. And rather than the spiritual shaman, I'm going to get it. At, it's, it's all related, but I love that. Yeah, you know, you, know you, you don't have to be dragged through the emotional mud. Yes. She wasn't dragged through the emotional mud. She literally had that experience of herself being abused and she looked at it and it didn't affect her anymore. She said, it did, you know, I wasn't affected by that. I was affected by my life. 
that I wanted to change. And that was in my way. That was the block, and she was able to drop it. You're above the fray, which is so beautiful. Mm. You don't have to be dragged through that emotional mud. Yeah, you're lying on Dr. John's treatment table in bliss for one week, and it's gone. It's yeah. not dragging. That's what I love. It's just lie on my table. Well, there, there, there is work to do, Dylan, because then you have to go home and take the action. You know, yes. then you have if you have in relationship, you have to then put it to action. And that means put your truth, not the need for the approval and appreciation, because that's you doing them. But you realizing and taking the risk to, to give without any expectation, to access the truth of the relationship, uh, which is that you love them, but you don't love them because you want something from them. You love them because the love itself gives them joy. There was another study where they, people gave gifts in a hedonistic way, where they gave a gift and they wanted something in return, approval, appreciation, some big thank you, you know, a party, I don't know, whatever. They wanted approval, right? And then they gave the same gift in a eudaimonic way, which means that they give the gift with no expectation to get anything in return. It's for the, the gestalt, for, the, for the, the joy of giving, really, truly, with no expectation. When they gave hedonistically, it had a negative effect on the genetic code versus eudaimonically positively changed the genetic code. So when I give you a gift and I don't want anything in return, I just love giving it to you, you can tell the difference when I'm giving it to you with something, getting it something on a cellular genetic level. You can tell whether it's safe to open up fully and have a heart-to-heart relationship or this person's full of it and I know I can't trust them. So I'm going to hold on to my cards. We can tell. if We don't might not intellectually realize what we can tell, but we choose whether to open up or not open up based on the truth of who's, uh, how they're interacting with you. It's a beautiful thing. We perceive it. I think we've all known it. We've all experienced it. We just didn't know how to put it into words. But now you can begin to act on the feeling and trust it because the science is in. Yeah, beautiful. Before we just wrap up breathing, of course, people are wondering what breathing to do. I mean, it sounds like it clearly is a profound intervention. And I want to add, coming from a strong meditation community where they're very heavy on transcending, and during meditation and it feels like and the breathing is there the pranayama is there but it's not as much there as i think it should be and that i see now there's more yoga studios coming up with the kriyas and the pranayama they're emphasizing that more which i think is great but i i just want to share for me for others who will relate you know coming from that transcendence just like i just transcending it's so powerful it does it all but not enough of the shakti not enough of that dynamic action of using the breath using your energy and i think I, I can just, from my, I, I should be doing more pranayama myself and I can see how important that is really to enhance the physiology. It's, yeah. So how can people take action and what can they do? What can they learn? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so what you just said, I think is so important. You know, people spend so much time transcending. Trust me, there's nothing greater than transcending. It's the first step of becoming more self-aware. But the Gita says very clearly, first you must take, establish the being, and then you must take action. And you have to not only take action, it says it very clearly, you must not be attached to the fruits of the action, which is eudaimonic versus hedonistic giving. I mean, it's all there. So you go to the, go, a lot of times the meditation groups, they meditate, but they don't tell you to take the action. As a matter of fact, they're oftentimes very self, spiritually self-centered, spiritually selfish, all about me and my I have to do my meditation. I can't go give and care for others because I have to meditate. and Otherwise, I lose my momentum. This, I think, is a mistake. It's my personal opinion. 
I think they need to get out and start giving because we know the science is in on that. Sattvic, when I, was, I just wrote this article, like all these studies on giving and caring and others and being sattvic, it changes who you are, facilitates you on so many different levels. So I do think that would be, you know, I mean, I wrote a meditation course because I was so frustrated with meditations, not teaching people how to go out and give and care and, and change the world, you know, take it off the mat and go make it real, you know. So that's such an important part of it. The meditation technique that everybody, I think, should start with are, you know, some simple slow meditation, uh, breathing techniques, rather, slow breathing to help get into the rhythm. And I think that's a great thing to do before you go to bed at night. Before you go to bed at night, you, your brain, or while you're sleeping and you go to bed, and while you're sleeping initially, the studies show that you're going you're gonna to review all the, everything you did that day, you're going to basically replay it and de-stress it before you go to bed. So before you can go into really deep sleep and REM sleep, you're going to have to replay all that stuff. But when you meditate before you go to bed and close your eyes just for a few minutes, you kind of replay and dump all that before you go to sleep. So you get in that much deeper sleep. So one of my favorite techniques is just doing really slow ujjayi breathing, just long, slow, and 10 count on the in and a 10 count on the out. Or if you're getting better at it, a 10 count on the in with a hold. And then as soon as you feel the slightest bit of urge, a 10 count on the out with a hold. Just really slow your breath down all and then the slip nose. into a meditation and then go to, all through the nose. Yeah, an ujjayi breathing. You can do it with alternate nostril breathing or you can take, you can go in, you know, really slow, hold. Out the other side, really slow, hold. In, really slow, hold. So you can do holds on both sides. And if you do that and you put an oximeter on your finger, You'll, you, if you do it long enough, you'll start to see during your exhale holes that you'll dip into intermittent hypoxia and you'll get some of those kumbak benefits because you are doing, in fact, kumbak or breath retention. But the other one that's probably the most important one because our, most people have poor diaphragmatic function is a breathing technique called pratiloma. And pratiloma is, is a breathing technique that in Western medicine is used as in the, under the name inspiratory muscle training, which means strengthening the muscles of inspiration, which is your diaphragm. So in Western medicine, those breathing techniques have been proven for heart failure, for lung failure, recently approved for COVID, uh, approved for blood pressure, and in about 10 or 15 different studies, proven to reverse GERD, heartburn, and reflux. So here's a breathing technique that can cure GERD and reflux and heartburn written in the medical journals, but when you go to the doctor with your heartburn, they give you Prilosec or some Omeprazole or some anti-acid. They never tell you to breathe, but in their own journals, it tells you you can actually reverse that condition by breathing because there's an intimate relationship between the function of your diaphragm and the function of your stomach and your digestion. They're intimately connected. And if your stomach is not functioning well, the diaphragm is right next to it and it can't contract through the stomach. So therefore, the diaphragm is trying to contract through this big stomach, which is oftentimes pressing on the diaphragm, making it very difficult for it to contract. That plus inactivity, sitting too much, and then stress, you know, shallow breathing, all causes us to have a weak diaphragm. So the technique, the pratiloma technique is very simple. You take your fingers and you partially close your nostrils, so about 80%, close both nostrils about 80%, and then you breathe in as fully as you possibly can. Try to fill your belly first and then your chest all the way to the tippy top. So if you did that with me, breathe in all the way in and breathe in all the way to the very top. You'll feel underneath your rib cage, your diaphragm contract and then open up your nostrils, let it out through your nose. Breathe in again, partially close your nostrils 
all the way in, freeze it in, and you should feel your diaphragm contract and then let it out. You pinch it, and that creates resistance that makes your diaphragm have to work extra hard to contract. So we're going to make it an inspiratory muscle training technique by creating this resistance with your fingers. And then when you breathe in all the way in, just like when you're doing reps, doing bicep curls or something, the very last couple are the hardest where you fatigue the muscle. We're trying to get that diaphragm to contract all the way contract so it can really fill the whole rib cage up. So that means that little pulling at the very top. It's a real exercise. And then you open up your nostrils and let it out. So it's fully in, 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 squeeze it in and let it out. Fully in, 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 in. And I usually say do 10 of those to start and then maybe build up to 30 if you're comfortable. And then after the last exhale, you just close your mouth and breathe and hold your breath and do a breath hold. So you do 10 to 30 maximal inhales with partially closed nostrils, about 80% closed. After the last exhale, you do a breath hold for five seconds or 10 seconds or 30 seconds or a minute or whatever is comfortable. And as soon as you feel the slightest urge to breathe, you go right back into another round of the pratiloma and do another 10 to 30 of that. And, you, and I, I'm a big fan of doing about three to five rounds of that twice a day for a month to change your diaphragm. And then from there, you can do it much less, but now you have a diaphragm that's functional for you, and then you can begin to add other, other pranayama techniques. Love it. Yeah. And I have an article called Strengthen Your Lungs Now and How to Breathe Away Your Heartburn and Lower Your Blood Pressure with This Breathing Technique that all talk about that exact same breathing technique. So there's lots of, and there's videos that can show you how to do the whole, the whole thing as well. Beautiful. Love the free intervention. It's powerful, like, Give yourself a little discipline, as, as Dr. John was saying earlier, move that discipline of your life, that fire into your practice and do that for one month. So, yeah. And, and do the shift. Beautiful. So we got, we got the pranayama, we got the nasya, we got the shifting your perception of what is the norm and what society is saying about aging simply to a, a different perspective and why is it held. Well, what else are some other key things for, for those later years in life? Well, I think that the, the bigger factor is the Nobel Prize winning science on circadian rhythms and how important they are and how Ayurveda was all over that, you know, living in sync with the natural cycles, eating with the seasons, going to bed at the right time, eating in the middle of the day, not eating late, you know, eating seasonal food. We now know that the, the bugs in the soil change dramatically from one season to the next. We know that they attach to the foods that you are supposed to eat if you didn't spray them. And those bugs have a synergistic relationship with the actual food or the herb you're eating, which is why at LifeSpot, I only use whole herbs, organic, because the synergy between the bug on the plant and the plant itself is intimate. Studies have now shown that the bugs on the plant oftentimes do the same exact thing as the plant does. You take the chemistry of ginseng, you take some of the bugs that are particularly attracted to ginseng, and they do the same thing independently. So they really work together to amp up the potency of the plant or the food or the medicine. So we shouldn't be spraying things because in nature, you know, for billions of years, when you pull something out of the ground, you got the bugs, whether you liked it or not. That's how we evolve. Now all of a sudden we eat herbal extracts, which are sterile, or foods which have been sprayed. It's really a problem. And so that's a really big, important thing. You know, I wrote a book called The Three Season Diet back in the year 2000. It was all about eating with the seasons. And uh, 
And uh, then I, uh, a few many years later, I, I read a study where deer were eating bark in the winter. And they found that they have different bugs in their gut for eating bark in the winter. And they have a unique set of bugs in the summer for eating leaves. So you have different bugs for digesting bark in the winter and new set of bugs in the summer for digesting leaves in the summer. They gave the bugs bark in the wintertime or in the summertime rather. And it caused such a level of indigestion for the deer, it almost killed the deer. And I was like, oh my gosh, you got to be kidding me. Deer potentially die when they eat out of season. What does that mean for us? Because we have no idea what we're eating, if it's in or out of season, when it was grown, where it was grown, all of that. So that's when I started taking my, my book on EC eating, and I broke it up into monthly packets. And now we, we actually give that away for free every month of the year. It's called the Three Season Diet Eating Guide. Just type that into my website at lifespa.com and you get that, you sign up for it. Every month you get information about superfoods and grocery lists and recipes for every month of the year to make sure you're getting the right amount of the right foods with the right bugs for the right season. So you change your microbiome along the year. So you have immunity, supportive bugs in the winter, decongestive, anti-allergy supportive bugs in the spring, and bugs in the summer to dissipate heat and a whole lot more than that. But those bugs are supposed to change as part of our circadian rhythms. And those bugs are horizontally transferring their genetic material into our genetic code to protect us from the environment. So those bugs are important. If we spray them or don't eat them or wash them all off, we don't get those bugs. We're not getting the information about the changing world. And you know, it's changing in a not such a great way with all the pollutants, but we can, we can genetically gear up for that by making sure we're getting the bugs, which are little messengers. They're our little microcosm messengers that are helping us stay here because we are here. We, you know, we're here because they want us here because, you know, they're running the show, really. You talked earlier about how that kind of fights between technology and spiritual way of living to particularly those younger people, maybe, or the teenagers, like you were saying, technology is probably going to win off. They kind of just get hooked to that way of living and it, they're so closed and that, that light, I guess, of the natural Vedic way of living is, is so faded. I think one of the ways to kind of remove that deep ingrained habit or tunnel of technolo modern technology which is causing such disconnection from health and nature, is to connect with the local foods and the local herbs and eat seasonally, know where your food's coming from, touch the food where it's growing, learn to forage. I think that's such a powerful tool, especially with these younger you know, ages, these children who are developing and just to remain that connection for everyone. It's so important. In seasonal eating as well, I just on that. Can you talk about seasonally eating dairy, or well, specifically cow's milk? Drinking the cow's milk. Um, yeah, you know, in the springtime, the most cows are having their babies, so the milk is really for them. And then throughout the summer, it's for them. And then come winter, there's or fall, there's going to be some excess. So the dairy farmer would be able to take that dairy and make ghee or butter or cheese. And that cheese would be able to allow them to survive, you know, through the winter. If you take people like in the, in the Alps, which is sort of a classic kind of dairy farming kind of a place, and they had salt mines there and Salzburg and all that, and they learned to rub the salt on it. And they would then, the seeds of cheese would last throughout the winter. If they didn't have that, they wouldn't have survived in the winter. They couldn't live there. They also establish certain bugs that allow them to digest it. And 
you know, and they were able to digest that wheat. They have something called lactase persistence, where they have the ability to break down lactase even as adults. It's just all part of their genetic, you know, ability that they evolved to be able to handle this food that allowed them to survive in the world that they lived in. So I'm not I'm not against dairy. I think you know I, I think that dairy is a harder to digest food, and most people don't digest it very well. Uh, wheat is a hard to digest food, and we. I think we're on the end of a total fad, billion-dollar industry fad called gluten-free. And people are still under the illusion that they should just, if they can't eat a food because it makes them feel bad, they should just stop eating it and problem solved. Well, the problem isn't actually solved. You just stop eating the harder-to-digest foods. But the harder-to-digest foods, the wheat, the dairy, the nuts, the seeds, the grains, legumes, the the, the lectins, the nightshades, all these foods, the goitrogens, they are irritants to the intestinal lining. They're hard to digest for a reason, and they stimulate something called gut immunity, which is 70% of your immune response. And when you take them out of your diet, the studies now show that people start losing their gut immunity. People who are gluten-free have four times more mercury in their blood than people who eat wheat. They have more bad bugs and less good bugs than people who eat wheat, and they have significantly less killer T cells and measure immunity than people eat wheat. So the studies are in now about how taking the food out of the diet was a really bad idea. And Dylan, we're talking about gut immunity here. So you take all these people who haven't been able to eat X, Y, or Z for the last decade or two, and, and if you don't digest those foods well, what happens according to the studies is the undigested proteins and fats, which include environmental pollutants and, and toxins, go into your intestinal tract unbroken down. They're too big to get into your blood and feed you, so where do they go? They get uptaken into the collecting ducts of your lymphatic system. We call it rasa in Ayurveda, which is the study of the longevity, because rasayana is a study of rasa. So the lymphatic system gets congested, and that lymphatic system carries your immune system. So now all of a sudden your immune system is literally stuck in traffic, right? Because you're not digesting well. So then all of a sudden we become more vulnerable to viruses and COVID and things like that, which penetrate, infiltrate through our mucous membranes in our gut and our respiratory tract, which are, according to the new science, bidirectional. There's a microbiome in your, in your lungs as well as in your gut, and they are bidirectional. They work off of each other. In other words, if your gut's out of whack, your respiratory immunity is going to be out of whack as well. So that makes you vulnerable. And then what happens is that then you have a, an, an infection, a vulnerable mucous membranes to become infected. That causes a lymphatic reaction or an immune event in your lymphatic system, which is already congested because you've been eating undigested proteins and fats that are clogging up your lymph. And now you have you know, a more overzealous immune reaction than you need to. And could we say that that's all due to people, to the gluten-free industry? Eh, I, don't, I wouldn't lay all the blame there, but I would highly recommend that people stop cooking the can down the road and fix the real problem I have an ebook for free. Anybody can read it. It's called the Trouble Digestive Troubleshooting Guide. Stop not eating the foods that are hard to digest. Let's fix the problem so you can digest like an 18-year-old when you're 80 and 90 and 100 because it's going to take you out. It's going to take out your immunity uh, on every level if we don't. We can't just pretend to feel better by taking a food out of your diet. You got to fix the reason. So it's really important. Yeah. Anything else do you want to leave the audience with? Well, I feel like we covered so much. I would just say, you know, dive into inner space, you know, before it's too late. 
But thanks for having me, Dylan. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Beautiful man. There's so much more knowledge to learn from Dr. John. He, you know, lifespa.com is an absolute encyclopedia for Ayurvedic knowledge. It's one of those places where if I want to learn about something, I just type it in and see what the Ayurvedic view, see what Dr. John's research shows on that area. And to elaborate more on the wonderful things that he touched on, like he's got, you know, an Amazon best-selling book, Eat Wheat, which is all about, he was talking about the to eat wheat or to not eat wheat, to eat gluten or not eat gluten. It's fantastic book fantastic resources he's got a podcast the life spa he's you know been a director for the new jersey nets for the nba team he's written seven books he's just a wealth of knowledge so check him out and if you appreciate this work go ahead and leave a review share this episode with anyone you think would benefit from it and dive into ayurveda more do the research from the pure sources who maintain that purity of teachings and I think Dr. John is one of those people, those rare people. And of course, as I said earlier, you can learn from Dr. John's teacher back in the day, my teacher. They're offering some beautiful pulse self-referral techniques where you get to know yourself at that foundational level of consciousness. You know, it's not so much intellectualizing Ayurveda, but directly experiencing Ayurveda in its true root, which is the pulse, the radial pulse. So... Until next time, my friend, much, much love.